Welcome to Highlawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. For more information, visit us online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We're so glad you've decided to join us and pray that you'll be blessed by the truth of God's Word today. And now we invite you to grab your Bible, if you're able, turn to Revelation all the way in the back, right before the maps, and join us as we walk through Revelation. Well, we are in session 28, where we're talking about the bowls of wrath, uh, the last series of plagues that God pours out upon the earth. So, but before we get into that, let's bow our hearts for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we get uh, ready to journey into this passage of Scripture, Lord, help us to be open to Your Word. Help us to fully uh, not only embrace its truths, but to digest it, to um, glean your will for our lives from it, as well as your, your outlook. Lord, help us to see your mind at work. Help us to understand you better as we look at this, this confusing passage of Scripture, Lord. But nevertheless, the word that you have granted us, the word that you have given to us in this precious gift that is our glimpse of the future. So please help us now open our hearts and our minds to your word and our hands and feet to your service. In the matchless name of Christ we pray and all God's people said, amen. So just taking a look really quickly into review, we are in the last of at least the judgments of Revelation. We've talked about the seals, the trumpets, and now we're in the bowls of wrath. And if you remember, it was the final trumpet that kind of set this into motion. Now for tonight's session, we won't be covering uh, the parenthetical statement or the seventh bowl. We'll be covering instead bowls one through six. And then in our next session, we'll finish up the, um, the parenthesis, which is the Battle of Armageddon, the seventh bowl, and then chapter 17. So tonight we're only covering the first three quarters, if you will, of chapter 16. Now, before we get into this any further, there is a pattern to God's behavior that I think that we need to consider. How God handles those that rebel against Him. Um, the book of Romans actually gives a pretty clear answer of that. And, and Paul here is reflecting on what happened in Egypt in terms of when Moses confronted Pharaoh. And it gives us also a foretaste as he's, as he's describing those events from God's perspective. He's now giving us a foretaste that I think that we need before we can fully embrace what we're talking about in the bowls of wrath judgments. So in Romans chapter 1, uh, Paul writes, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. In other words, uh, God's definition of righteousness of the difference between right and wrong is not hidden from people. It is plainly visible in His created order. And yet by their own disregard, by the old sin nature as we call it, they choose to disbelieve. They choose to, to dig their heels in and 
claim themselves as God over the Creator. As Paul continues, for His invisible attributes, that is, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what He has made. As a result, people are without excuse. Now, isn't that interesting? For though they knew God, yes. Dan, could you move that back, please? Yes. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all, excuse me, godlessness. Okay. Godlessness. Godlessness. Okay, I, I And unrighteousness. All right. So, let's get back to... If you're online and you didn't hear, there was a question about the wording of this particular passage. But um, anyway, moving on, uh, I believe that we were on the last slide of that series. Twenty-two. All right. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity, so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. So, because they ignored the reality of God, because they decided that rather than submit themselves to the authority of the actual creator, they would instead create, fashion themselves gods that more uh, closely resembled what they wanted from God. See, God is righteous. God is just. God is glorious. God holds us accountable because he is a just and righteous judge, not to mention a creator of all, the creator of all things. Therefore, we are accountable to them. So Paul is basically saying here that the creation wanted to escape the authority of the Creator. So those that departed away in Babel uh, decided, in the case of Nimrod that we talked about last session, they decided to create mythologies for themselves. So instead of worshiping the one true God, they built images of false gods. They created stories and myths around those false gods so that they became a God that you would want to worship. They became a God that you would want to have in your corner. They would create a God that would give you power. They would create a God that would give you uh, the ability to do that which is unjust. So, so who are you really worshiping if you're bowing down to an idol? You're worshiping yourself. That is the real sin of idolatry, if we can put it this such. It's not only uh, declining the Creator for who He really is, not giving glory to God. It is also worshiping the creation yourself in place of the Creator. And because of that, God allowed them, after, after willful disobedience, after willful disbelief, choosing to disregard the invisible God for something that they make with their own hands, 
God gives them over to what in the King James Version uh, claims to be a reprobate mind. In other words, he hardens their hearts and gives them over to whatever they want to do and lets them suffer the consequences for it. God delivered them over to the desires of their heart to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. So, excuse me. So the pattern of God's wrath against sin or fury in some of your translations is basically that those of willful disbelief or disobedience, one, they suppress the truth about God in favor of a lie, a lie that they themselves create. Two, they deny their own accountability of God as the creator. And because of that, God, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. They seek to worship themselves in order to gratify the desires that God deems unworthy of them. In fact, Paul goes on through the rest of Romans chapter 1 to give you a litany of what a reprobate mind actually looks like. All of those sins that are an echo of the Old Testament law that basically form the basis of Christian ethics, uh, Paul says that not only are they still against our ethical values as Christian, or at least they should be, but they also stand as symptoms of what happens when God lets the old human nature take over and take over utterly. This is what happens when you seek to worship yourself instead of your Creator. So the truth of God and His righteousness, Paul also tells us is evident through all created nature, that it's plainly available even though that God is invisible. Creation is very much visible, tangible. All you have to do is look around you to see what God deems is the difference between right and wrong. And it is now unrestricted in its completeness through who? Through Christ. We have a living human example who through through a perfect life, lived out his calling. He who knew no sin. God also answers unrighteousness by allowing the unbeliever to suffer in their own delusions. Those that already have hard hearts, their hearts become even harder. As they dig their heels in, God lets them become subject to their own delusions and their own desires and their own fallen nature, their own way of persecuting themselves and those around them. Those that worship themselves, desire themselves above all others, including those, most, those that should be the closest to them. Persecutors of the family, persecutors of their society, persecutors of their country. They allow those who are sinful to become fully degenerate. And, they ju- and he judges the sinful and condemns them. Now, when we talk about the plagues of Egypt, we also need to take a study on them for just a second because a lot of the truths back from Exodus chapters 7 through 11 we find here. What can we glean through biblical theology? One, 
that these plagues were proclaimed against abusers of the people of God. Two, they were poetic in how they were handed out. And we'll see a little bit come to play in this chapter. Um, because as the Egyptians were, were idol worshipers, they had a huge pantheon of different gods. Uh, our God actually sent ten plagues against their pantheon of gods. Each plague was a reflection against one of their gods of worship, including the god-king Pharaoh himself through the death of the firstborn. God also answered their denial with making their hearts even harder, as we saw with Pharaoh. With each plague, his heart became what? Hardened, even harder. He would repent for a half a second and then bring them back. He would repent for, for a moment's breath and then clamp down even harder on them. And this was God's judging him. That was God actually giving him over to his delusion. The bowls of wrath that we're going to talk about today, remember, uh, getting into the study. This is a continuing image from the small scroll images that we've seen uh, before up until this point when Paul, uh, excuse me, when John was given the scroll from the angel. There, the wrath that we're talking about as we studied in the last session was metaphorically harvested, excuse me, in the two sessions prior in Revelation chapter 14. It's depicted as, as pour, the pouring out of wine that has been newly fermented, or as we talked about, uh, vinegar or gall. But it's also reminiscent of Old Testament worship, like wine offerings or what we would call in your, some of your copies, uh, drink offerings. In fact, there is a scene in the Feast of Tabernacles called the Water Oblation, where for over the, the, the week of Tabernacles, the high priest would descend from the altar and he would go to the Gehon Spring and carrying a golden pitcher of water, he would grab the living water and he would wait for the sound of the trumpets to call from the temple. And then he would walk up uh, the water gate through a series of steps and present that water from the, the Holy Spring as a drink offering, as a, 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 a liquid oblation, a liquid offering before God pouring it out as the... Uh, as the crowd shouts, Hosanna, which translated means, save us. So this is kind of a reflection of what happens in the Feast of Tabernacles. But anyway, these final plagues have a target. And again, it's poetic justice how God plans them out. So, let's go into Revelation 16 with what is called by John, the final plagues. I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go and pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath upon the earth. The first went and poured out his bowl on the earth and severely painful sores broke out on the people. Underline this as you're reading along. These sores or boils in some of your translations broke out on people who had the mark of the beast and who had worshipped its image. So this is judgment against those who had been the beast worshippers, those who had taken the, the mark upon themselves. 
And I want you to notice this is kind of poetic justice. Um, it is directly tied to the mark, as it indicates here in the passage of Scripture. It is a judgment against a self-disfigurement about taking upon yourself the image of the beast in rejection of the image of God in which you are made. Something else that you need to consider uh, boils, which is what happened when acne is allowed to fester for too long. The, the, uh, the infection grows to the point that it can't escape. And it becomes a giant um, pocket of infection within you. Basically, uh, boil is an outward sign of an inward corruption. So poetic justice, if you disfigure yourself, take God's image out of yourself in favor of the beasts, what God is doing is giving you over to a full disfigurement. You're basically uh, showing outside, just like leprosy of old, that the outside is, is showing that you're corrupted also on the inside. Well, it, it's not directly against tattoos, just this specific one. <laughs> uh, all right, uh, chapter, excuse me, verse 3. The second poured out his bowl into the sea, and it turned to blood like that of a dead person. And all life in the sea died. Now I want you to notice the way that that's worded. It doesn't say it turned into something like blood. It says, it, unlike other passages of Scripture that we've read, there's no metaphorical language here. No like or no as. It says that God basically through the pouring of the bowl of wrath turned the oceans into blood. But it's not ordinary blood. Now, he, this is where it gets metaphorical. He says that it is like the blood of a dead person. And all life in the sea died. So this is a judgment on the sea that it became blood. Again, no metaphorical language. As a dead man's blood, which means uh, poorly oxygenated blood is more purplish to blue in color. It's the same... Uh, it's, it's a lot darker than, than the way that your veins show up. It also congeals as it lays dead, which means it thickens. Um, God, through this act, actually puts to death all of the life in the ocean. It it's also kind of harkens back to, to what happened in Egypt when Moses dipped, his, uh, dipped Aaron's rod in the... the um, the Nile River also harkens back to the trumpet uh, judgment in Revelation 8, 8 and 9, where a, a third of the water, where a, a meteor the size of a, a, a mountain falls into the ocean and a third of the world's water is turned into something like blood or resembles like blood. But there's also, if you remember back there, it also kind of hints that one of the reasons behind it, what what God is actually attacking is man's greed because his commercial interests are tied with the ocean. Something else I want you to notice. Now there is conjecture that this may very well still be symbolic language, that it might not be actually in substance as blood. It might not uh, be of the same chemical makeup as blood, but be something that resembles it from John's perspective. And that's perfectly possible. I'm just pointing out the way that it's worded. 
But whatever you want to read into, and I want you to remember these truths. Number one, this is not a man-made ecological disaster. This is not global warming that we had a part in. This is not uh, somebody, this is not a Chernobyl event where something goes down or the Exxon Valdez where it it split up and and, uh, lots of oil gushed out upon the ocean. No, this is a supernatural occurrence. This is something that happens at the prompting of God and God alone. And the people on the earth seem to notice this because they start blaspheming God because of his judgments. Verse 4, the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard an angel, the angel of the waters say, angel of the waters, that's an interesting phrase. Um, I'll get to that later. You are just the Holy One who is and who was. What is he missing? Is to come. Almost every other place in the book of Revelation we've seen, and, and through the rest of the Bible, who was and who is and who is to come. And yet here, it's just the Holy One who was and who, or rather who is and who was. Why? Because He's now here. Because God is present. Previous sessions, we saw Jesus and the 144,000 reappear upon Mount Carmel. Or Mount Zion, rather. But anyway, the angel of the waters. You are just, you are holy, who is and who was, because you have passed judgment on these things. Because they, the ones that you are judging right now, poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets. You have given them blood to drink, and they deserve it. This is poetic justice. What did the martyrs shout to God when they received their robes. How long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? We'll get on to that in just a second. So it it also reminds me, I'm getting ahead of myself. Anyway, verse 7. I heard in the Greek, it says, I heard another voice, Alice, another voice from the altar say, not that the altar itself was speaking. Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So the angels, the angelic host, are confirming both that the the punishment fits the crime, not just in its severity, but in the way that it occurs. An eye for an, an eye. So anyway, this is judgment on fresh water. Basically, uh, <laughs> What God is saying is that if you want to spill the blood of my people, I will give it to you to drink. Because that's all that you'll have. So he's targeting, this is a judgment specifically targeting those who persecuted, who killed the saints, and who are persecuting the people of God. Those who are in rebellion, in other words. It also kind of reminds me of the quail in the desert from Numbers chapter 11, where the people of Israel murmur against God because all they just have this manna. We don't have anything to eat else except for this manna. We're that we had some meat to eat. So God says, okay, you want some meat? I'll give you some meat. And he sends them an, uh, an airstream full of quail so much that they almost drown in it. 
And they actually become sick that they have so much of it. You want some meat? Here you go. That's basically what he's saying. You want to spill some blood? Here's some blood. God also, in Genesis chapter 9, if you'll recall, claims of all creation that of all of life's blood, I will demand an accounting. And here he's turning that commandment, that, that, that realization of who he is into a judgment. Now, I wanted to take a look at the angel of waters for a second, and I'm curious because there are, there's a lot of conjecture about them. Because in some cases we hear that angels have locality, that they are stationed in certain places for a certain period of time. For instance, if you remember in uh, Revelation chapter 9, we heard that the the uh, river Euphrates actually has an angel stationed around its waters. Anyway, the angels, the angelic host, one from the throne of God next to the altar, and this one from the waters, wherever he may be, uh, blesses God for his righteousness, declares that his judgment does fit the crime. Uh, we talked about the God who is, who was, and whoever more shall be. I also wanted to mention this as a, just a point of of basic armchair theology. There's a, dif there's a difference between justice and mercy. If you don't know this already, write this down. Justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace, if you want to think about it, is giving you more than you deserve. I don't want justice. I definitely want grace. Because according to the Holy Scripture, our righteousness is as filthy rags. For there are none righteous, no, not one. And all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We don't want justice. We want mercy, and in reflection of that mercy, we should ourselves be merciful. But that's getting into another sermon. Let's go on. Verse 8, the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. Now we've seen the sun come into play an awful lot in the book of Revelation. Last time that uh, we had anything uh, on our neighborhood star, it was that one-third of its light had been blotted out, that he was that the sun itself was struck. But here we see that a bowl of wrath was poured out upon the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. Again, not like or not as, and that gives me pause, and that causes me to have to think about that, and we'll, we'll get more into that later. People were scorched by intense heat, so they didn't notice, they didn't call out for mercy. They're not begging for forgiveness. They're not seeing this as the foretaste of hell, which it actually is. They do what instead? They curse God. They blaspheme the name of God. As the rest of Scripture says, who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. There was an angel, if you'll recall from previous sessions, that actually shouted to all of creation, this is your last warning. Give God the glory. But here, even though they know, according to this passage, it's inferred that the people on earth know that these judgments are coming from God and that God has the power over them, 
but they're still choosing not, not to beg God for mercy and to call them off, but instead they curse his name. The son, a couple of things I want you to, to notice about them is often thought of as the first thing, the first object of pagan worship. That aside from man, actually in, in Nimrod's case, aside from man starting to mythologize man's self, we started worshiping the sun the second that we were able to as, as an object to praise and so forth. Um, from a humanistic standpoint, if you want to think of it as uh, the atheist standpoint or the uh, ag agnostic standpoint, the uh, sun is often attributed as our source of life, as a, a never-ending source of energy to be exploited and so forth. And again, previously, uh, the sun came under God's judgment in the fourth trumpet judgment and had lost a third of its light. But in this case, it's given power to burn people with fire. Now, what does that mean? Are we talking about a solar flare, which is the more literal case of the sun burning somebody with fire? Are we talking about just an intense heat where it goes above? In my case, I, I'm, I'm a pansy when it comes to heat. I'm, I'm bad above the 73 degree mark. Uh, are we talking about something above the Arabian Desert's astonishing uh, heat here? Not really fire, but just heat. Are we talking about superimposed UV radiation? The truth of the matter is, I don't know what, and, and no one is able to really other, offer anything more than conjecture. But this judgment has to do with the sun becoming a volatile source of pain for those who live upon the earth. But again, the people themselves, they see that's going on. It is a prelude to the judgment in, in, in Tartarus, in hell, in the Abuso. But they show no signs of repentance. They go even harder hearted and they rebuke God, refusing to give him glory or refusing to acknowledge him as Lord, as their creator in reflection of Romans chapter 1 that we just went over. They will not assign God his worth. Worship from the old Anglo-Saxon is a contraction of worth-ship, meaning that in order for worship to be truly that, somehow it must describe to God his value as Lord, as Savior, as Creator. And they refuse to do any of it. Verse 10. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, not just the seat that is a throne. And its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues because of their pain and blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pain and their sores, but they did not repent of their works. So the ocean is unusable and everything within it is dead. All sources of fresh water are unusable. They're poisonous, they're toxic. And it should also be noted, and I don't think that I put it in your handouts, that in so doing, in making this, in making all the water turn to blood or something as blood, uh, 
What God is doing is making everything, every, every drop of water on the planet ceremonially unclean. He's signifying, he's putting his, his stamp on the fact that everybody that's left on the planet who bears the mark of the beast has been rejected. That they are unclean. Very Old Testament stuff here. Very, very Jewish understanding. So the darkness falls upon, it's targeted at the throne of the beast. It's reminiscent of the darkness from Exodus chapter 10. It uh, also uh, consumes the beast followers. Because it is a blotting out of light, you can think of it as a judgment against the wisdom of the creation opposed to the creator. Again, we just went over that in Romans chapter 1. Uh, we can also think of that as John 13, 9, which uh, is the desire of the creation without God's influence, in which Jesus himself tells us that this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people loved what? The darkness, rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. You know, we see an awful lot about this. They think of themselves as wise. They think of themselves as brilliant. That word brilliant actually means shining with light. But the truth of the matter is, God says, if you, if, basically in this judgment, he is effectively saying that if you think you're so bright, I'll show you exactly how bright you are. And this is no ordinary darkness we're talking about here either. Because as, is, as was mentioned, people are in pain because of the darkness. Not just that they were covered in sores already, that they were being burned already. We hear that and, and, and then the darkness hits and they're further amplified in pain. That now they're biting and they're gnashing their own tongues because of the darkness. So there's more to this darkness than just an absence of light. There's something about it that intensifies the physical pain and the torture that they're already going through. But we see again, they don't repent. They're gnashing at their own tongues in pain. But they don't call out to the God that can end it. They don't call out to the God that controls it. They know that he controls it. Instead, they continue to curse his name. And the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. This is part of the reason that we're going to need to talk about this a little further on uh, in the next session. <clears throat> then I saw three, three unclean spirits, like frogs, coming from the dragon's mouth, from the beast's mouth, and from the mouth of the false prophet. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who travel to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the great battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Look, and this is the voice of Jesus coming to us. Look, I am coming like a thief. A thief. Blessed is the one who is alert and remains clothed so that he may not go around naked and the people see his shame. Now, what in the world does Jesus mean by that? 
be prepared. We'll go into that in just a second. This is the sixth bowl. The Euphrates is dried up. The Euphrates is one of two rivers that make up what we call the cradle, the cradle of civilization. The Tigris and the Euphrates, the, uh, one of the most fertile areas of the planet. We call that region Mesopotamia. It is also the border of the original promise made from God to Abraham that the Euphrates will form its easternmost border. So when people talk about Israel not going any further than the West Bank, ask them which river they're talking about. Because the Bible says something different, but that's another sermon again. The river, it's also the river on which Babylon itself was built. Now effectively what God is doing is he's, he's taking an impediment away from the armies of the east moving towards the Jezreel Valley, moving towards Armageddon, Har Megiddo. So the question is, is God throwing down the gauntlet? Is God opening the door for this final judgment? Now, we've also seen this very curious episode, nine frogs, three frogs, or three rather, Three demonic spirits emerging like frogs that could mean either that they're hopping, that they're slowly crawling as a frog out of a mud puddle or, or so forth, but they're emerging from the dragon, from the land beast, from the sea beast. Now, frogs are symbols of idolatry in Egypt. That's one of the reasons that there was a shower of frogs as one of Egypt's plagues. There was a whole plague of frogs. But also, uh, spiritually, uh, or symbolically speaking, they're also amphibians, meaning that they live in two different worlds, water, land. Uh, that is one of the images that you can take from this. But the question that a lot of our commentators are asking here, are the demons that had empowered the Antichrist and his prophet abandoning them. When I put exercised up there, what I'm asking effectively on the behest of some of the, some of the other folks that are scratching their heads about this, are they abandoning thinking of the Antichrist and his prophet as futile? And that now they take this other mission of reaching out to other world leaders to gather armies together to try to literally combat God? Or are they rather being released by the enemy? Like Legion, if they're being empowered demonically, do they have thousands of demonic spirits within them? And these three specifically from the dragon, who, who is Satan himself, so that's a curious image, from the coming world leader and from, uh, from the religious guru. So these nine spirits, their basic mission is to whisper into the ears of other world leaders to incite them to battle. And God is effectively saying, you want to come to battle? Here's your way in. It dries up the Euphrates, the eastern boundary for the promised land, so that they can do their work just 
as Jesus looks at Judas, his betrayer, and says, not don't do it, not please think of something else, not repent. But at that point in time, he looks at Judas and he says what? What you must do, do quickly. God is never not in control. I think that we think of Armageddon as something to be avoided. This passage of Scripture seems to, to, to hint that it's something that God has been preparing for for a long time and is fully capable of defending himself. So if the coming world kingdom, if the coming kingdom of the Messiah requires the battle of Armageddon to complete, it looks like God is opening the door for that battle itself as an act of judgment. We also see this exhortation from Christ which reminds us basically to remain clothed. Now, Jesus has taught upon this subject beforehand. Like when he tells the parable of the virgins with the lamps and the oil. Keep them ready because you never know when the bridegroom is coming. And that phrase, I come as a thief in the night, he's used also in the Gospels. But here... I want you to take a look with me at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Because here Paul actually lays down a commentary on, I think, both Jesus' former teachings and this in the book of Revelation. You, my brothers and sisters, are not in the darkness for this day to surprise you like a thief. In other words, when you see the signs coming, it's not going to take you by surprise, even though it will take them. For you are the children of the what? The light. And the children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not sleep like the rest. But let us stay awake and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled. Put on the armor of faith and love. And the helmet of the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, you will see this day approaching, and you will be sheltered from it. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we may be awake or asleep, meaning alive or dead, we may live together with him. All through the book of Revelation. When John's talking about the persecutions, when he's talking about the mark of the beast and how people can't even provide for themselves unless they take it, he always exhorts the believer to be discerning about this. To remember that your eternity matters far more to God than your here and now. In other words, if it really does come down to it where you have to choose between God and death, the Scripture is effectively telling us that death is the better option. Better to claim death than deny God. And here Jesus is saying, 
or Paul rather, through the, the Holy Spirit, through the pen of Paul is saying, remember that you are children of the day to clothe yourself with all these things, including the helmet of salvation, your hope that is in Christ. So anyway, our, the parenthetical statement, again, there are, we just covered the sixth bowl of wrath judgments. Now there's going to be a pause. The pause contains two things. We're going to talk a little bit more about Jesus' exhortation and about what the battle of Armageddon means, as well as the seventh bowl. For next time, I'd like for you to take a look at the last segment of Revelation 16. And uh, I know it's not up there right now, but I'd really like for you to go ahead and read Revelation 17 as well. If you get a chance just to ground yourself in what Revelation 17 is going to talk about, please also take a look at Isaiah 13 and Jeremiah 10. Now this is, all this is written down for you in your notes. If you don't have a copy of it here, um, just log on to highlandbaptistchurch.org. All of our materials are there. And if you'd like to go back and look at some of the previous sessions, for those of you at home, all of these sessions have been archived on our YouTube channel. So if there's something that you'd like to bone up on, or if you'd like to start from the beginning, or if you'd like to use this as the basis of another, another group study sometime in the future, it is there for you. We made sure of that. Compare the women from chapter 12, the woman who was clothed in the moon, the stars, and the sun, with what you hear about Babylon, the woman who rides the beast. And I want you to ask this of yourself, especially with what we're seeing. You've, you've heard me preach on Romans chapter 1. You've heard me now briefly review it here. I'd like for you to ask yourself as you're doing your devotions, what does it take in this day and age right now and the challenges that we have to be Christian? What does it take to actually be fully committed to God? As always, as you're reading, journal down what confuses you, journal down what insights that you get and what you've learned previously. And give your friends a call, meet them in a coffee shop, at a restaurant, discuss them over. Please keep that going. Anything else before we dismiss for the night? If not, please don't forget that our 74th anniversary is this coming Sunday. It's in Albans Roadside Park. Um, bring a dish and your favorite lawn chair. If there is nothing else, then let's be dismissed. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for the opportunity to come together, to meet, to break the word of life. Lord, please continue to use these sessions to help us to glean more of your truth from this precious book as we claim its promise that those who read it and those who learn it, those who hear it, will be blessed by you. Continue to um, give us the strength for what is to come. And we pray that in the day of testing that we may be found worthy of you. Not for the sake of our own works, but so that we may be dedicated to you in gratitude for the way that you were dedicated to us. Again, we grant 
and we commit ourselves into your hands without any reservation. Use us as you will. We just pray that you would use us in our efforts to bring glory to your name and to bring learning to your people so that through these works, those who have yet to come to know you in a free pardon of sin may do, may do so before it is everlastingly too late. And it's in the matchless name of Christ we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us at High Lawn Baptist Church. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. At High Lawn, we believe that when you love God, you share His Word. When you love others, you spread the gospel. We would love for you to join us next time, and if possible, to join us in person. To contact or learn more about us, to donate to our ongoing ministry, or most importantly, to learn about the salvation offered to you through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, visit us at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. Once again, thank you, and God bless you.